sorry I kept interrupting your sleep. Um, the pattern in which I was talking was a pattern that you kind of need to engage in to keep checking yourself. After a while, you don't need to do that anymore. It just becomes natural. But you have to kind of say, okay, am I here? Or am I at work? Or am I somewhere else? Is my mind clear? Or is my mind dull? And so you, you have to keep checking yourself. Okay, am I in the present moment? Um, if, if I'm in the present moment, what are all these people doing here? And uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're somewhere else. So you know you're in a dream state. You have to keep pulling yourself out. The problem is, is that we get used to indulging in that and allowing ourselves to stay in that state where we, we're just letting the thoughts come and the thoughts are so, are so strong they overcome us and we try to fight and then and they hit us again and they hit us again and they hit us again. But I wanted to give you an idea of a longer period of time of a session where you're working at trying to stay in the present moment, trying to be here and clear and have a discernment in the mind. And you will have good sessions if you do this um, because you're, you're actually there fighting what the one master said that you were prepared to fight 10,000 enemy. And so you're like a, a hero in the, the Kung Fu movie. Jo Ren Fa, you know, and there's so many coming and attacking you and you never get tired. I don't know how those guys don't even get tired, but they never get tired. And so you have to be that way. You have to be fearless. You have to be there and, and, and fight it. Really, you have to, when you're there, you're not fighting with your physical or, or fight it with, um, with any tenseness in your body. You have to be very, very loose, but you have to, to, to be ready for battle. If you're not ready for battle, then you just become an illusion, um, or you fall asleep, you get tired. So your body will trick you and say, oh, this is a nice time for a nap now, because it's so quiet. And so you start getting quiet, and you're going, wow, I don't have anything to worry about, so I can sleep now because I can't sleep at night because I'm worrying about everything or whatever it is. But you have to do it. You have, you have to, to fight. This is what all of the masters, they all are exhorting you to stay with it, to, to stay with your method, to fight off the enemy, to see clearly. And if you do this, it will work. It just takes time and you become adept at it. You will do it, you can do it. You just have to get used to it so you, you stay. Did Were any of you able to, to follow and, and stay for a while without having thought? Yeah? So you know that it works, but it, it's, it is an effort to it. There is, there is skill involved in terms of discernment and memory of trying to remember that you have a method, that this method is a method that that you are discerning moment to moment whether you're in the present moment, whether you're with your method. And then all of a sudden you're, where did, you know, how did I get here? No, this is not the, the present moment. 
and your mind is very, very clever. Like, um, for a moment, I had some of you were in the room, but you were over here sitting on chairs. And I'm going, there's something fishy about this. Something that doesn't quite look right. Hey, there's no chairs over there. So I'm, I'm dreaming, but it was very close to reality. But the mind is so clever, it can produce those kinds of, of illusions that look like you're, the people are there and everything is all legit. They were all meditating, meditating better than you guys were, but they, but they were illusion. I wasn't meditating as, you, as good as they were because I was in the illusion of, of following that they were there. And so your mind is very clever, so you have to kind of like go, oh, no, and you just kind of slice that off, and you just, you, you, you put it up there and say, no, this is an illusion, and then it goes away, and it never came back again, so that, and it was a nice try. And, um, but you, you are that way that you really try to, to stay with, um, with, with the method. You have to do that. But you have an idea now how to do it, don't you? Did it seem like it's helping a little? Yeah? It's, it just is what you have to do, and you, you have to do this part. All I can do is just help you in using guided meditation to try to keep reminding you to come back to it. But I would imagine when I was saying things like come back, were you caught in, a, in some dream state? No, you were doing all right? Good. So, so, you know, I'm doing that just to kind of give you an idea of a pattern of what you might need to do. Those who aren't in a dream state, just leave it alone and just ignore my voice and, and it won't bother you. But those who are in a dream state, it just reminds you, just come back. So you, what you have to do is you look, is it the present moment? Is it, is, what is this here? Is my, am I here on my method? Okay, and you hear my voice, okay, check, no problem. Or you hear my voice and you go, nope, I gotta leave work and go back to the meditation hall. And then you come back. So this is the way you do it. After a while, you will get very good at it. And what you do is when you come to your cushion, right away you start. You're already in your method before you even finish tucking your, your towel in. That way you you clearly have a chance. If you wait until you sit down and then all of a sudden you start thinking of things, then you're, you already start off uh, in a bad way. But if you're already quiet before you, you, as you're tucking yourself in and you're just going, on my method, I'm here. And you do a systems check, you know, present moment, check. No, no thought, check. No, clearly here, yes. Method, running, good. And, and you, you kind of like, um, like the countdowns for the, when they send people into space, they run through all these things to make sure they're all there and then you're off and running and you're on your method. You know that these are components of your method. Relax, I'm relaxed. Okay, um, no, you don't, you're not saying I'm sleepy or I have scattered thoughts. Scattered thoughts again, they're natural. You're gonna battle them, it's okay. Little by little, as you begin to practice more, 
the scattered thoughts will come up less. And you get to this place, this wonderful place, where there are no longer even thoughts to put up on the board or on the mirror. They're just gone. But the difference is, is that you still have this wonderful awareness, but it's not being trampled on by these thoughts. And that is the spot where your work begins. That is the entry door to this. So once you get there and you can hold that position, now, you, now you're in the game. Now you've got it going and, and you, you make a run at it. How do you make a run? Just stay with the method, stay with the method. And you just keep staying with the method. And it becomes easier at that point where when the thoughts do come up, it's like somebody knocking very loudly on the door because your, your awareness is so amplified that it becomes aware of these little minute movements in the mind. So the self cannot sneak in, you know, um, it, it so easily or walk in so easily, it has to kind of really, really tiptoe around from behind to try to get to you. But, but you're aware at least of the gross sensations and then you start working towards the subtle sensations of cravings, habitual energy that's looking for something to attach to. So this is the process that you go through. And if you can do that, your meditation is going to really begin to pay off. You're going to be able to sit very quietly. And here's the thing, when you're able to sit quietly, your body becomes very relaxed, it becomes very supple, and it's not going to bother you. But when, when you have a scattered mind, you become aware of all your body sensations. But when you don't have that, then all of a sudden your body just becomes very relaxed. And it doesn't bother you. And in, the, in that moment, maybe you're like this, and then in the next moment, you, you just slowly move your, your back up to get into a better position because you can do that because you're here and you go oh you know what I can do this and I don't feel tense by doing this I actually feel like I'm almost floating in this position and I just stay there and you just leave it alone after that you you go body relax check back to the method and you just relax and you're relaxing more in the method you're relaxing more in your body this is how you meditate and if you don't meditate in this way, you're just going to keep watching movies. And so you've got to break that habit. You have to break the habit of, of just giving in to watching movies when you sit down to meditate. That you have work to do. That there's something there. And what's important with that is because that type of meditation enables you to be very dynamic during when you're walking around coursing the deep Prajnaparamita with everybody else in the room or wherever you're at, it enables that awareness to be there. And it's going, ah, oh, it's not so quick to jump on what somebody said. What it does is, it's, is that it looks at things from a different viewpoint. It looks at it from, from let's say, a global perspective of what is happening. And it affects the way that you relate to people. Yesterday I was on the on the plane, and I was asleep, and the, and then I heard the the stewardess, and she was asking the people in front of me, 
you know, what they want to drink. So I missed her. But then when she came back to the cart, I said, uh, you know, uh, ma'am, I'd like a coffee. And she said, oh, I went by you because you were asleep. I said, yes, I know. And so, so then she kept serving the people and she forgot about me. And in the beginning, I was a little bit miffed about that. And I was going like, well, oh, you know, maybe she's just doing that, you know, to, to do that. And I went, wait, why should I impose this kind of a thought in this moment? And maybe she's tired and stuff. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to perfume this environment with that kind of a thought. Because if I think about it in that way, it's not, you know, it's not wholesome. It just produces more and more negative thought. So every time I see her giving a drink to somebody, I'm thinking, where's my coffee? So that was not good. So I let go of it. And when I let go of it, so I'm using wisdom now rather than Gilbert missing his coffee. And so when they were coming back through, the, there was two waitresses on either side of the car. And the other waitress said, oh, did you want something? I said, yes, I did ask the other one for coffee, but she missed me. And she goes, oh, she's like really spaced out. She's so tired because she's on her last leg. I go, yes, I know. There's no problem. You know, I, um, that, uh, I'm not holding it against her, you know. And, and so they both of them cheered up quite a bit, you know, and it was a different reaction than, a, than me saying, you know, yeah, she really blew it, she didn't give me my coffee and I'm really angry and whatever, and perfuming the event in a different way. But because of the awareness being there, the awareness, I was aware of Gilbert arising, these kinds of thoughts of, of self-love, self-conceit. And as I started seeing that, I went, no, this is not right. And so I train myself and I need to do that. I need to, to be able to do that. And it's not really training yourself, it's illuminating and to see the self arising and being aware. And so this awareness changed the potentiality of a situation where it could have gotten you know, really nasty or negative, I let it go and it went away. And and I, I started thinking, you know, how many times have I missed that? Where I put the negative things there. So this is kind of my new thing now too, is, is really being ultra mindful of these little small mundane events so that I can look at things and, and change them. And, and all of that comes from meditation. It comes from sitting in meditation and being aware when self is arising. So, so we do it in this way. The masters say, don't think there's no harm in you having a laxed meditation. There is harm in it. And the harm is that you're just repeating the same mistakes over and over again, the same poor meditation. So when you get up off your cushion, you have no benefit from your meditation. But if your meditation is good, the benefit of your meditation is great. It really changes your environment. So that's why we do it. And you have to look at it very seriously and say, I can do it. And have the faith. You have this faith that you, you can do it. And you break through. And you will break through and there will be periods, very long extended periods, where you will, have, where you will not have thought. Your mind will be clear. You are not. The difference is that some people can get into a very deep 
dead samadhi. That's not what I'm talking about. A dead samadhi is when you repress thought or suppress it. And when you do that, what you do is you're just physically, when I say physically, mentally blocking the thoughts. You're not letting the thoughts in, but that takes energy to do that because you're, you're pushing against the mind to try to keep it artificially blocked from thought. But if we understand that the thoughts are naturally flowing and that we do not have to, to accept them, then we just let them go. It's as if we're going by a buffet line, but we don't have to pick up the plates that are there. But the buffet line automatically passes before us. You want this, you want that look, jello, hoodie, you know, whatever it is, the hot dog that went by the other day, all those different things. No, no, I don't want them. I don't want those. I don't want those. And so you just stay with the method. And you understand that that's how it works. So when you, when you are in your daily life, if there's something there that's unwholesome, you don't have to get, get it. You don't have to pick up an unwholesomeness of a, a negative thought about a person. Um, so it changes things greatly when you, when you practice in this way. That's why I really push you hard to try to, to hone this practice so you can really have a good practice that you're not just sitting there on a cushion. Sometimes it, it makes me very, very sad when I go places and I see the, the level of meditation and that the people are resigned to just sit there and either sleep or engage in scattered thought. I feel sad for them because I just wish I could give them the effort that, that I put in. And if you can give them that effort to put into it, it, it will change the way they, they practice. But the ignorance comes from the lack of understanding, the causing conditions never fail. You putting in a proper exercise into your practice and it will produce the right results. And so I'm gonna beat you guys over the head with this today to try to get you to, to really get into the methods and, and do them right. A any questions? No questions. When, this is talking about the Watto, but I'll change it to the method. When bringing forth the method without giving rise to a second thought, just know that this uh, uh, method um, is, is present. The way is inseparable from everything else. If, 
it is something separate, then it cannot be called the way. Likewise, practice cannot be off and on. If your practice can be uh, interrupted, it is not genuine practice. True practitioners investigate as if their eyebrows and heads were on fire. And like a man confronting a thousand enemies at a moment face to face, how can he blink his eyes? So this is the exhortation of Master Beauchamp where we're, we're trying to say to you, you know, this is the practice. You, you have to, when you sit, you're ready to go. The practice is dynamic. Chan is dynamic. When we're engaged with people, we're not in a catatonic state. We're not in a state where nothing's happening. If you knew Master Shen Ying, his, his lectures were so deep, but yet he could make you laugh so hard that you felt your stomach was going to split open simply because, because he was made fun of the human condition and he knew how to do that. And he was very skillful in teaching and talking. Um, and, and it's this way that we, we use our method. We use it effortlessly. When we're doing it right, it's like a, a hot night cutting through butter. And as we become more adept with it, we'll find that it's easier for us to spot illusion arising in mind and, and be released from it. So again, we don't push it out, we just release from it by, by illuminating the mind. That's what's the illuminated mind. That's enlightenment. It's not something special. Like yesterday I was saying, it's not something special. It's not like a shaft of light comes on you and, and all of a sudden you're illuminated. You know, that's aliens at work. So leave them alone. And don't follow the light if that's the case. This is from Master Fayon, and he said, if you wish your mind to be purified, you must cultivate no mind. To illuminate everywhere by non-being, this is the subtlest. So to illuminate everywhere by non-being is the subtlest. Non-being is, it's a very strange type of word to say non-being. Non-being doesn't mean that you're not engaged. Quite to the contrary, you're engaged with everything. You're clear about everything. You're illuminating everything. So you're aware of all the different things that are happening. And the more you can become aware of this, the stronger um, your practice is. But it's very, very subtle. It's subtle. The difference is that if in this moment we listen, we can't hear very much. But what if we had a mind amplifier, kind of like a, a power amplifier that plays music? So when you when you play a, a record, the needle, it actually, if you listen very carefully, that's the sound it's making. It you just hear this kind of, but it runs through the turntable to an amplifier, and that amplifier amplifies the sound. And, and all of a sudden you hear things that you could not hear with your ordinary ear when that needle is going across the surface of the record. Likewise, when we're, we're here, we, 
really don't know how to listen. Uh, and I'm not talking about listening with your ears, I'm talking about listening with your entire uh, sense where everything is amplified. Not louder, but discernible. So in any given moment, you're looking at the state of this room. What is the state of this room? You know, and so you're looking at it and people are a bit, some are tired, some are doing this, some are doing other things, some are out of the room already. How would, can you pick that up? Because you're amplifying it. And the only way you can amplify that is by not having self. And so when you don't have self, this non-being, then subtle information comes in that's amplified that that other people can't hear. It's like like a dog whistle. No, when you blow a dog whistle, it's like, but to the dogs, they hear beep, and they, they perk up, they can hear it. But we can't hear it. But there's so many different types of mind waves that are going through. We miss them because we're not sensitive enough to, to, to pick up on them. The way we become sensitive to pick up on them is when we're meditating and we become sensitive of the mind waves that are normally running underneath that we, we normally aren't able to discern, which are those subtle ideas of self and that are colorless and formless. And when we can pick up those and amplify our own, then we're capable of doing that with nature around us. And, and so we become very, very clear about about what's going on in a particular place and, and we can also modify the environment so when you smile at somebody they smile back if you frown at them or look at them suspicious then they go what are you looking at all those things are very very subtle but as you begin to use them they they, they really begin to work if the second thought is not produced the first thought is cut off naturally. That's what I've been telling you the whole day. If the second thought is not produced, if you don't have an akusala thought, an attaching thought, that second thought, if it's going to come up, it's going to die off naturally. It's not going to get there. There is nothing in the three realms. No mind, no Buddha. So now he's talking about the sunyate. But the sunyate is just simply because when he's saying no mind, then I would say to him, no, it's just mine. And he'd say, if it's just mine, it's no mind. And they mean the same thing. All, all they're saying here is that don't think that there's anything that's there. Just allow awareness, this naked awareness, to function naturally. Consciousness is empty. Mind is non-existent. Mind is empty. Action is renounced. So we don't have to have a doer. We just do. We do whatever we need to do. When we have a doer, they're going, oh, how long is this going to take? Oh my gosh, this is going to take forever. I can't believe I'm doing this. You know, um, yesterday my son was taking me to the airport and he's looking at the other side of the freeway and it was very early in the morning, but he was already suffering about being on the other side of the freeway going back home. He's going to say, it's going to take longer to go home. That comes when it comes. 
So I told him, if, if it's too long, then take a side street. And I told him a side street to take. But we already are perfuming the environment and we're, we're producing negative vibrations to try to change. So in that moment, I was trying to tell him, no, you know, trying to change the environment and have him not think in this way. It is not necessary to contemplate the void. You are enlightened naturally. So when it says not necessary to contemplate the void, it's difficult. It just says use it. So what he's saying is just use the void. Use, use your mind. You know, and in this way, you're naturally enlightened. But if you're trying to think about what is it like to be enlightened, if I'm here and if I do this, does this mean that I'm enlightened? Some lady yesterday was telling me about the color she was seeing. No, that's not it. And it's not close to it. And the more you concentrate on that you're seeing colors rather than thoughts, then isn't seeing the colors a thought. We don't have to see it in this way. We just use the mind in a natural way. So he says, put your mind to rest on a place of non-being. On the place of not being, put your mind to rest. Emptiness and enlightenment appear naturally. Stillness is not produced. And what he's saying here seems to be kind of like, well, you're you're it's redundant. But what he's saying is, is just that there's this naturalness to the mind. This is how the mind works. And this is what I've been telling you in terms of that. If we don't know how the mind works, then there's no way we can act naturally because we cannot discern what is natural and unnatural. So we begin to think that thoughts are natural because they're always springing up. And after a while, we have a garden full of weeds. We're totally confused about that because we thought, oh, well, you know, I thought the, that the weeds were the mind. No, they're not. If we act naturally, the, we provide no fertile ground for the weeds to grow. Once we provide no fertile mind for the weeds to grow, it cuts them off. But if we try to, to pull them out, we cannot do that because they're still like a dandelion. Anybody ever pull dandelions out of your yard? And then they, they're there the next week. Where the heck did that come from? I thought I pulled it out. You didn't get to the root. So there's no way you can practice in this way and get to the root. The only way you do it is by doing it naturally. So you create an unfertile environment for those weeds to grow. That's the form mindfulness that you keep wholesome thought you give rise to wholesome thought you cut off unwholesome thoughts and you don't give rise to new unwholesome thoughts so this is what you're doing on your cushion the four mindfulness are part of the 37 aids to enlightenment so if you're doing that hey you're at least you're on the road so not bad so this is how one practices in this way and, and you understand why you're on that cushion. That's really critical. It's critical. If you know that, you know how mind works, 
then you've got a chance. But if you think that you're just going to sit there like a bobber in the ocean, you're just going to be at the whim of, of the currents of the ocean, and you're, you're, you're just going to be bobbing there from lifetime to lifetime. But if you, if you really begin to understand that, then it, it changes the way that in which you meditate. Any questions about that part? No question? Okay. Um, this is a little bit more from Fry Young, and what I want to do is, is what I'm tying in is how mind works, what mind is, so that we can kind of get an idea of that. And we get an idea of what mind is by what mind isn't. And then how we tie the practice into those things so that so that it can, you can bring forth a, a really proper practice. So this is from the, an essay entitled Absolute Contemplation. And he's talking about no mind. And he says, the question is, how does one name the mind? Well, let's start with that one first. How does one name the mind? What would you say? This is kind of like your quiz for the day then. See if you were paying attention. How does one name the mind? Nobody? Oh, come on. You can at least have a guess at it. Humor me at least. How can you name the mind? It changes day to day. It changes day to day? Hmm. What do you think? Do you think the mind changes day to day? Consciousness changes day to day. Huh? Consciousness changes day to day. Consciousness changes day to day. So, he says, okay, I'll give you the first one for free. He says, you do not, you need not create the mind. And so the next question is, how does one make, how does one make the mind at rest? How does one make the mind at rest? It's already at rest. Huh? It's already at rest. So you say it's already at rest. So he says, you need not make the mind rest by force. This is real peace. You don't have to muscle the mind into, into resting. You just have to illuminate it, and naturally you find that the mind is the mind is at rest. It's all these other consciousness stuff that's going on that that make it look like it's all, all not at rest. But ultimately, the mind is just mind, and, and it's working perfectly. Um, it may look like it's creating a mess, but it's not creating the mess. It's in the consciousness uh, that that that's happening. So here comes a good one. Okay. So he says, what is mine? This is a question I ask every day. What is mine? You have to ask that question. What is mine? So what do you think mine is? You don't know. Oh my God. I'm tooth and nail with it right now after about a year of this. So I don't know. What is mine? You guys have been here all this time and, and you still don't know what mind is. He says, 
what makes the six organs able to contemplate is called mind. So he kind of names it in a different way, saying that which enables these organs to contemplate, what are the six organs, anybody know? <laughs> body, mind, or con consciousness. So he says, what enables those to to contemplate? Remember now, he's saying contemplate, not think. So, so those things are there, and so now he's pointing to the self nature of the mind. So he's saying contemplate, not think. So to to contemplate is this awareness. So we have that awareness there. What does mind do? What does it do? Think about it. What is mind? And what does it do? Think of the things that I've talked to you about, about mind and how it functions. How, what does it do? Look into mind. This is important now, okay? It, it, we're playing this game here, but it's an important game. What does mind do? Think of, of we've been talking about how mind is and how mind works, pratika samapada, all those things. And, and what mind is and what mind isn't. So what does mind do? Remember, it's a trick question because Chan always has trick questions. Nobody, come on. The answer's like really, really obvious. If you look into it, then you look into mind and see how, how mind is. Come on, I know you have the answer. Reacts to outside stimulus. Reacts to outside stimulus. What more likely would it react to outside stimulus? Is that doing? Alright, it's a function. But you see, it says, what does mind do? Mind is still. Remember, it's like, did you see that mirror move yesterday? You see a mirror move? You ever see a mirror move? Has anybody looked on the wall and seen a mirror move around the wall. Huh? You can see images, right? And those images are moving. But does the mirror move? What does mine do? Reflects. Huh? Reflects. Reflect. Yeah, it's just still. It doesn't do anything. It's just mine. We understand. The reason I'm, I'm doing this is so that you can begin to, to, um, to get to a point where you see this and you understand the difference of consciousness and, and mind. So you do not confuse consciousness and say consciousness is mind. Consciousness is within mind 
and it, and the reason that you can see it is it enables to contemplate like what you were talking about that enables those things to do that but it enables it to do that by being still if mind had its own set of of components to it and form it could not serve as that to reflect what is what is appearing it can only do that if it's a mirrored surface See, now we're getting somewhere, right? I'm, I'm doing this for a reason, because we need to kind of look at this. And if we don't have this rudimentary understanding of mind, we can make no headway on the cushion. But in these Dharma-ending days, sounds so dramatic, um, people don't teach like that. They, they don't approach it that way. They just say, sit on the cushion and don't think. You know, <laughs> stop your thinking. You can't do that. You can't do that. You know, you have to understand what that's all about and what means not thinking. And so you have the idea of not thinking. And, and for the people, they have to do it themselves. And, and it can't be taught it has to be experienced that's why i'm doing that i'm i'm trying to get you to contemplate mind not think about it but to contemplate it and if you can contemplate it then you understand chan when you're in the state of contemplation you're in the state of, of chan you are are looking into the to it yes I, I don't think it is in that way, and, and your question is a good question, because her question was saying, you know, is, is, is consciousness like the bad guy? Um, no, but he, it's his home. Um, you know, the thing is, is that, that consciousness is not bad, and, and I'll read you something to that effect in terms of that, when you understand that. It isn't, we don't talk about sacred or profane. We, we talk about consciousness as simply being a part of mind, the phenomenal side of mind. But we understand that it produces illusions which other consciousness perceives to be real and therefore perceives that they're suffering. So we understand that the, the improper use of consciousness will result in suffering. But consciousness itself is like the, um, the jelly donut. It's innocent. Okay. It, it itself isn't the cause of what makes people fat. It's somebody craving it and putting it into their mouth that causes, the, causes them to become fat. All of that is neither good nor bad. It's just causes and conditions. If you eat a jelly donut a day, you'll probably gain 50 pounds by the end of the year. Okay, that just causes and conditions. You know, that's just simple. One comedian was saying um, that people wonder, like people who are heavyweight, and they go, I don't understand how I got so fat. And he said, yes, you do. Don't you understand? There was more going in here than was coming out the other side. It's just the way it is. 
that's the thusness. Uh, of course, it's a humor, maybe a little bit growth, but it's it's just the way it is. So when we understand consciousness, we understand how it can create this illusory suffering. But consciousness itself is not bad. What's bad is this. What we we're talking about, a kusala and kusala, where where it's an unwholesome thought that produces more and more illusion of vexations and discriminations. Um, you know, cravings that come up from it. And all of that comes from the ignorance of not understanding how consciousness works and how mind works. Once we understand that, then consciousness is used in the proper way. Other people's consciousness are used in an improper way, but we're mindful about how they're using it and, and why they're saying the things they're saying. And then the world doesn't become a mystery at that point. So it, it is a good question in terms of, of doing that, and I'm going to address that in a moment, you know, in terms of that, hopefully that will also help you a little bit more. So we know that the mind is still. The mirror doesn't move. Okay, so here's the next one then. What is the substance of mind? Remember, you have to look at this as a mathematical equation. What is the substance of mind? Who's the math person here? Not me. <laughs> what is the substance of mind? Mind. There. Sorry. If he says mind, how many agree? Lucky guess. <laughs> yeah, mind. There it is. You see, by now you're starting to pick it up here, right? What is the substance of mind? Mind is the substance of mind. Because there's nothing outside of mind. So, so we see clearly that there isn't anything outside the substance of mind. We cannot say something is, is sacred or profane or different. Or that that's why we were talking about that um, a vexed mind and the Buddha mind, there's no difference between them. There isn't, because they're just there due to cause and conditions is how they're appearing. Okay, here's the next one. If you guys don't get this one, I'm walking out of the room, okay? Because <laughs> there's a pattern here, okay? Remember, there's a pattern here. What is the primary meaning? Mind. There we go. <laughs> Mind is the primary meaning. Primary means what is the, the chief meaning, the most important meaning. Mind is. It all is mine, you see? It's all mine. And when we see things in this way, it, it becomes very, very clear. Because when we go, okay, I understand. Mind is this. Consciousness is within mind. And consciousness is always changing depending on what's going into it. So it can either be a wholesome thing or it can be the baloney factory, depending on what's going through it. And it's just the way it is. But we know all of that is happening in mind. There's no other place. All of that's on the, the table of mind. It's not separate. So then it's finally, what is wandering in meditation and wisdom? So what is wandering in meditation and wisdom means you're wandering in meditation and wisdom, and it says 
The stillness of the mind and the inner nature is meditation. So when you're meditating, what did I say? Be aware. When you're aware, you're the mirror. Right? Stillness. That goes all the way back up to when it says, what does mind do? Mind is still. So when you're sitting to meditate, you're in awareness. There's no cogitation going on. You're simply reflecting everything that's coming into mind. That's coming through the consciousness. And so you're aware of that. So the mind is, is still. That's what you're doing in your meditation. And your inner nature is, that's the way things are. The inner nature is, the, the self-nature of mind is this awareness. Constantly understanding the stillness is wisdom. Constantly understanding the stillness is wisdom. This is right view. You understand how mind works. So, when you are there and you, you're looking at your credit card bill and going, how am I going to pay for these 20 pairs of shoes I bought on sale for half price? Well, causes and conditions. You know, you should have figured that out earlier, you know, but now you've got this issue that's there. Cause and condition never fail. You were going to get the bill, you saw it. So everything we do has a bill that comes later. If we're angry at people, if we're cheat people, the bill comes later. We have to pay it. And we don't sit around going like, why me? Why did that happen? You know exactly why it happened because you were there. And so when you see things in this way, it's clear. And, and this is our practice very, very simple. Now, the, before we take our break, the last one I wanted to tell you is one I, I like quite a bit. Um, this is from the, the Mind of Chinese Chan from an author called Yi Wu. And it's a very delightful book. It's hard to find it, but it takes you through the patriarchs and some of the, the chief uh, um, uh, Chan masters and uh, in a chronological order and, and gives a little something that they were they were known for and a little blurb about them. But what it's really good for and the way that it's structured is food for thought, for food to, to contemplate, I should say more likely, is, is that it gives you a presentation of the progression of Chan thought and the uniformity of it, but also it gives you a way to think about it and, and to look into it and say, and, and so it helps with that. So this is case 11, Wolun skill. And it says, a monk told Hui Ning. Hui Ning was a sixth patriarch. Um, he's like 6B actually, but that's another story. Um, about a poem by Chan master Wolun, which says this, so listen to this, this poem. Wo Lun has skill. He can cut off hundreds of thoughts. When facing outside states, means something not that he's thinking about, but when facing outside states, 
his mind is not moved. The Bodhi in his mind is growing day after day. The Bodhi is this, this wonderful um, Buddha wisdom. It's growing day after day. So, take the first line. Wolun has skill. What do you think of that? Huh? You think, well, after listening to Wolun's poem, do you think he has skill? Yeah? No? Alright. He says, but he can cut off hundreds of thoughts. What do you think about that? He has skill because he can cut off hundreds of thoughts. What have I been teaching you today? Huh? You don't do that. You, you just let them arise, right? Okay. So, you think there's some place that on that mirror that Wolun could write his name and claim the mirror? So it's not possible for him to have that much skill. When facing outside states, his mind does not move. So when he sees the things around him, his mind doesn't move. What do you think? Is that good or bad? His mind doesn't move when he sees things going on. You know, somebody's arguing or something. His mind doesn't move. His mind is is quiet. You think that that's right? Huh? He pass out. <laughs> Whose mind? Yeah. Huh? Whose mind? Whose mind? Okay. And the Bodhi in his mind is growing day after day. And what did I teach you today? Do you think the 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 Buddha mind grows? It just is. It's naturally there. It's always been there. Always been there. So. Maybe before today's class, you might say, well, that sounds really good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to practice in this way. But here, what Hui Ning is, is doing is, is he's, he's going to point to how the, the, um, the self-nature of mind works. So, so pay attention to this. <coughs> By the way, <coughs> Hui Ning also talks about no thought. Okay, so don't confuse this with what he's going to say because he's, he's, he's a very strong proponent, proponent of no thought. But here he, he approaches it from a different way. Hui Ning has no skill. He can never have skill. Where is he going to, to do that? Hui Ning is an illusion. He does not cut off hundreds of thoughts. What did I tell you about thoughts? That it, do you cut it off or what do you do? Don't engage. Huh? Don't engage. Don't them. engage them. So you you are have kusala thought. K U S A L A. Kusala thought is just as the thought comes up, if it's necessary, you <coughs> use it. And after you you finish it, you're, you're done with it. That is a state of no thought. Okay, and so. That's why he's saying that um, he does not cut off hundreds of thoughts. He uses the thoughts, but then it doesn't attach to the thoughts. 
when facing outside states, his mind moves often. This demonstrates the dynamics of the Chan mind. The Chan mind is constantly changing and adjusting in accordance with causes and conditions. Instead of somebody saying, no, that's the way it's been. It's always going to be that way. I don't care. Yes? Yeah, I'm confused about the fact that like, uh, two minutes ago we were saying mind is still. So how is that related to the fact that now you're saying that mind is gone? Yeah, because the mind is still, but the mind is still in action. So it's still in action. It uses consciousness to, in order to carry out the function. And so it, it's doing this, but it's not attaching to it. It's just following the nat natural function of the mind. It's free from, from all of the different, um, you could say, the um, vexations and desires and discriminations in the mind. So it only does what needs to be there in, in, in following the function. And for somebody like him, it would be following the function of the vows to deliver numerous sentient beings. So it, it's very, it, it's movable, but there's a stillness in that action. This is not a contradiction. Your question's a very good question. But there's a stillness in the action. So in me delivering the lecture today, in the best parts of it, then there was a stillness in my, my delivery of it. Is that it just is what needs to be said. As I'm ask, answering your question, there's a stillness there that, that's reflected in the conduct. But if there is um, um, attachment, then that too would be reflected in what I'm doing in accordance with causes and conditions. So that question is one for you to contemplate. What does that mean? So the contradiction is there, and you have to look at it and try to resolve it. And ultimately, you will resolve it, and it, it will make sense. At this point, it doesn't make sense to you because you have to look into mine to resolve it. And I'm not saying that in a hide-the-ball way. It's just simply, I cannot take you through that door. But the very fact you get that question, like she had the questions about faith, those you have to resolve yourself. But they're there, and you, you use the words of the well-known advisors to kind of guide you to take a look at that and go, how can you be still and yet be moving? But you can do that. When I was um, in college, I had a poster on my wall and it was a Chinese block print of some waves. And, and it said, I am like the waves that ever go rolling. I'm moving all day, but yet not moving at all. And then later on I thought, hmm, that was a good poem, but it would be better this way. Instead of saying, I am like the waves, just say, like the waves that ever go rolling, moving all day, but not moving at all. And cut out the eye. But, there is stillness and movement, okay? So that's why he says his, his mind moves often, but that's just in a reflection of, of, of the functioning of mind, and the bodhi is just this way. The bodhi, you already have it. 
So that's the good part. The good news is you have it. You know, you just have to work at it to allow it to reveal itself. And that's the thing that mind does. When, when we talk about enlightenment, there's no enlightenment because there's no sentient being there to become enlightened. And so if, so if you ask a master, are you enlightened? If you ask, you know, um, have you seen your self-nature? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense for them to say, oh yes, I've seen it, I've seen it at least 15 times. Because you would just be confusing the people and you'd end up coming back as a fox in the next lifetime. So we don't want to do that. What we want to do is we want to guide the people and when, when what happens is as you begin to practice, mind reveals. It reveals its depth, its broadness, and what appeared to be mysteries before are answered. You cannot say, okay, that you figured out all of the mysteries, because you're not figuring them out. It's just mind is, is revealing it, and you use that mind in accordance with what's been revealed and its potentiality from there. But as one goes more towards complete enlightenment, I'm not saying from my, my self um, experience, I'm, I'm talking about someone like a Shakyamuni Buddha, then more and more of, of mind is revealed. That's what he was doing when he was sitting under the tree. He was, he, he was contemplating mind, seeing how mind worked. But by contemplating mind, he's looking into the everyday occurrences. And all of these in everyday occurrences, when he was sitting under the, the tree, Mara, which is, which is kind of a personification of, of, um, of evil or the devil, would tempt him with different things or try to make him afraid or whatever. But he used all of those to convert it to wisdom, to see the things very, very clearly. So when Mara sent his daughters to tempt him, very beautiful daughters, he saw them as old age. In old age, they were going to be old and, and wrinkly like everybody gets. And so he understood this is just a temporary thing. There's no possibility, there's no permanency to this beauty in this way. Beginning to understand how mind works, how all of these things happen. And that sitting that he's sitting was sitting for us so to enable us to do the same things, to see the world as it really is. That doesn't mean that you go, oh, you know, and you look at your wife and go, ah. Oh. You know, you only got like another 20 minutes before you get all wrinkly. Or you only got another 20 minutes before you grow a pot belly or whatever it is. You, you enjoy that moment, you enjoy the youth, but mindful of that things are always going to change. And they change all the time. It's very funny because I run into a lot of people in my line of work and, and they change. You know, somebody changes and all of a sudden you know, I had one guy came in yesterday and he said, well, he, you know, his, his wife and him got along real well until she went and became a Jehovah Witness. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you know, the fun stopped. So, um, in any case, he, you, you know, they, they weren't meshing. Everything changes. Sometimes it's, I just, you know, I got tired of them or I got some interest or, or whatever it is and things are, are this way. So we see 
this dissatisfaction in this world of attachment. And by doing that, that's wisdom. And then that wisdom enables us to look deeper and deeper into how mind works and how all of these things happen. And they're very simple and mundane. They're not, there's no real special key that you turn where all of a sudden everything, you know, is converted to something else. The ironic thing about it is everything is ordinary and mundane, and it's seen just as it is. The only difference is, is that you realize you have a choice whether you're going to play the game or not play the game, or you're going to become somebody that's going to come in and throw lifesavers around and try to pull the people uh, out of the suffering. And so this is how we would work. And all of that is part of that. And so in the stillness, there's this dynamic function of the mind that is, is moving. Very, very incredible. Okay? So, yes? Yeah, they, they, it's what they call mind king. So it's not an entity. It's not the Buddha sitting somewhere. It, it is just mind. But the thing about just mind is very, what's very interesting is, is that we can break that down into the term pratikasamapada. Pratikasamapada meaning that cause and conditions never fail. And understanding that term is to is to understand the Buddha that that there's that is what the Buddha mind is 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 constantly um, in a state of of phenomenal changes and understanding those phenomenal changes are a result of causes and conditions and and seeing things in this way those beings within mind that have reached a state of Buddhahood are functioning with that realization. And so when we say it is just this way, it's why in the Diamond Sutra they say that the Buddha cannot be known by his 32 marks. Have you ever heard that before? So the 32 marks are different marks like a top knot and a a swastika here, different things, the pearlescent skin, all those things that, that they say this is what the Buddha looks like. And then again, this is somebody's idea in terms of what they, they think the Buddha should look like. Is this the Buddha and is this what the Buddha really, really looks like or not? It doesn't matter because the Buddha himself says, you, I cannot be known by these 32 marks. Because it, in the Diamond Sutra, it cuts through all illusion. That's the name of the sutra, is the diamond that cuts through all illusion. And so by cutting through the illusion, it's saying, do not see things by way of a name. Do not see things by way of some form. That, that the Buddha mind is beyond name and form. And beyond attainment. It is just what it is, and it's it's there now. It, it's never 
It's never changed. That part, anything that changes is phenomenal. Anything that changes is phenomenal and is part of the mind, like in the consciousness, but it's constantly changing. In one moment, it could be thinking of very nice things, and the next moment, it could be thinking of very bad things. And your mind constantly vacillates between those things. Say, oh, I like that. Oh, I could just strangle that person over there, right? Oh, whatever happens is constantly moving. So we cannot invest in the consciousness. There is a saying. Now, I've said it the last time. I want to say it again. You guys have to remember. Do you, do you remember what I said the last time? Which section? <laughs> okay, here we go. Ready? This is very important. It's very, very simple. But if you remember this, all you have to do is try to remember this one, okay? If you remember this, this will be like the like the key for you to remember what I taught today. Remember, to put in your memory banks. If I remember this, I will remember everything Gilbert taught today. Okay? All right. It goes like this. Sages return consciousness to mind. Sages means wise people return consciousness to mind. Fools turn mind into consciousness. So fools turn mind into consciousness. So there's only um, four components here, sages and fools and mind and consciousness. So it's a very easy one to remember in this regard. So sages return consciousness to mind. Consciousness is moving around out there saying that it is. It is because it says it is. Um, I think, therefore, I am. But it's not that way. That's a fool. That's a fool thinking, okay, mind is this, I am, so I must be mine. But it doesn't work that way. Sages look at it and say, that's consciousness, and that's part of mind. And what is the substance of mind? Mind. What is the primary meaning of mind? Mind. So everything comes back to that. And so then when we look at the other one, fools turn mind into consciousness. It's because people are always thinking consciousness is mind. They never have an idea of where it appears. Um, probably about four years ago, I was at the University of Ohio, and I was giving a lecture to the the staff over there from the psychology department, and it was all these psych psychology professors and PhD candidates. And I was talking to them and saying, have you ever wondered where all of these thoughts that you guys are always analyzing appear in? And they go, what? I, I'm just wondering if you know where they appear in. No. That's not conscious. They have to appear somewhere. And they were totally blown away because <laughs> they had no idea that mind was the fundamental. They were treading in consciousness and never gave thought to that there was a possibility that there's actually this mind that, that threads everything together. There's a concept that we have, it's called Indra's net, I-N-D-R-A. And 
Ender's net is like like a net, but at each juncture of the net there is a mirror that reflects everything else. So there's nothing outside this net that isn't reflected. And if it's reflecting something here, it will reflect over here. So everything is connected in this way. And when we look at things in this way, it's it's a very a very interesting um, way of looking because all of a sudden you see everything is in this way. There was once when I, I had um, an experience and um, where as I was looking, actually it was at, at a retreat that I was giving and on the last day I got this image that was incredible which was just simply mirrors like a, a mirror mirrors infinite mirrors I think they call them where all the mirrors are are looking into each other so you just look infinitely into the mirror and it, it was a, an incredible experience where all phenomena all things were all infinitely reflected upon each other and that's kind of like mind revealing itself um, is it that way who knows you know the thing is is I, I don't pay too much attention to it except for the fact that sometimes it's good to try to explain what mind is by using something like that to to see this infinite mirror that's there very very credible but the idea is is that we understand that there's mind there and we 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 see that consciousness is within mind. So how, how did consciousness come up? How did consciousness come up? Yeah, how there's, there's no point where we can go back and say, okay, this was day one. There's no point like that. There's only, the only thing you can do is look at the laws of, of dependent origination, uh, the 12 laws of dependent origination, and if you look at that, it will show you how things come into being, okay? And even from, from the suggestion of arising of a thought, attaching to the thought, creation of desire, creation of body, the contact with it, all these different things until finally you get down to death. So, so if you look at it, this is a good time for you to do that. I can do just Wikipedia. You'll find it, and you'll find all sorts of references to it, and that will help you understand how these things go. And everything goes in this way, and so if you see it in this way, it changes the way you look at the world. The world is the same. The only difference is, is that you choose to look at the world either by way of of ignorance and attachment from the self, or through wisdom. And when you see the world through wisdom. It's the same world, but you understand the real rules that are governing it. And once you see the real rules, then you then you become responsible. Heck, if I call this person a jerk, I'm going to lose my job because he's my boss. I won't do that. So then you learn something. Yeah. So um, if one were to say you know, more common, it's all in your mind. You know. Um, would you say that that's kind of like saying it's all in just the way you construct things? I mean, it's not obviously it's all in your mind, meaning minds, 
know, that we're referring to here, mm -hmm. this universal. Um, but what are we really saying? When you're saying, oh, that's all in your mind, you know, like you're saying, no, no, I, you know, I saw you on on the corner with this guy, you know, and so then the girlfriend or the wife, oh, it's all in your mind, you know, but we're referring to consciousness there. We're referring to somebody saying, you're you're making that up because you're assuming this and this and this from 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 this particular situation. There was once when I came out of court, I was representing this man, and the other side didn't have an attorney. So after we went out of court, I started talking to the other side and saying, you know what, you know, you better think about this carefully, you know, and I was saying, because you're going to lose, and we're going to collect this and this and this, and it's better for you to settle with this. So my client's watching from down the way and me talking to this guy. And, and so later on that afternoon, he came in, and he wanted to fire me because I was talking to the other side. And and so that was all in his mind, his impression of what was happening. So that's how we use that saying is that's all in your mind because is that really what was happening? And, and it's a good example what you're bringing up because there's many times when we're in error about what's happening. For instance, you're walking down the hallway and there's somebody that you know walking the other way and you go, hey Joe, and he's just like in his own world and you go, heck with him, he just mm -hmm. blew me off. But he might have had a fight with his wife about being seen in the corner with this person. And that morning, and so he's oblivious to the things around him. So in your mind, you create, he doesn't like me. Or whatever it is, and then all of a sudden you create things negative to that because of the way that your mind is fabricating these illusions. So instead you, you, you see the things clearly and you have a patience with the world. Most of the time we're not patient with the world. And so we want to rectify the problem right away because we've got that little guy right there telling you, hit him, hit him, call him a name, get even, get even. And then when you do that and you get into trouble, he's over here saying, I told you so. I told you not to do that. <laughs> you know? So, so that's how that is, is when, when you start thinking in that way. It's, it's, it's an illusion. But it's not, you know, it's all in your mind. It's all in your consciousness that you're fabricating that. So, so that's the thing is, is that our, our consciousness is capable based on habit energy of creating many doubts in you about other people or suspicions or whatever. Now there's times when it isn't, but one looks at the situation carefully to see, okay, if this and this and this is happening, these things may be a high probability that this person is cheating or doing this or, or, or has an intent to take money from you or somebody else. Uh, in in a way, and so you you become careful about that and kind of kind of guide guide yourself with that, but you still with a with an open mind in terms of, of the fact that you might be wrong, but you still look at things carefully. But the only difference is you have better data. Okay, so if you're looking for weapons of mass destruction, you're not looking for this just because somebody thinks that they were there or it's a good reason to invade this country, but you actually have strong data that say that that's there, so that you can do it. Yes? 
Like you yes, because of that. Somebody wronged you, and that it wasn't might not be the case. What if you know somebody wronged you? What is that person thought in that case? Again, that's a good question because you, if you know somebody has wronged you, then you have to determine the proper course of conduct. The proper course of conduct isn't necessarily the immediate knee-jerk reaction of hit them, yell at them, you know, tear up their clothes, or do something. It, you, your reaction has to be measured with wisdom in terms of what's happening. And it's difficult because depending on whether they wronged you and if it's somebody close to you they, uh, and, and they had a high level of confidence with you and they, they really betrayed you in some way, versus somebody, you know, that just hit your car, you know. Um, and so, so you have to measure your response so as to not make the situation worse or create a situation where it's an eye for an eye and after that then it's a tooth for a tooth. And then you're in a, in a battle with this person, whereas if you look at it and use wisdom to look at it, then it, it can change what you're going to do. That gives you that kind of like a three second delay that the networks have so that they can cut out all the expletives, all the, the bad words and everything and the bad things that are going to happen. So wisdom gives you that chance to analyze those things and to determine the proper course of conduct. Of course, in your consciousness and the habitual tendencies, maybe not you. you, you might be a very, very incredible person in terms of that, but other people might say, well, if that person did this, I'm going to do this. So many a poor innocent car has been damaged by a woman who thought that her husband was cheating on her, you know, and they have cheat and liar and whatever, and they have a matching garage door like that too. Um, but it isn't necessarily the proper measure of, of how one should do things. I'm not saying that you, you couldn't do that, but you have to think about that in the whole context of things. And so as we see things, we use wisdom to determine what, what the course of conduct is. If somebody cheated you, you can go to the police. There's nothing wrong with that. Or you can bring people to confront them but not in a way where you're bringing a big brother to beat up somebody. You know, you, you, you measure it based on your wisdom as to what you're going to do. And you do it. It doesn't necessarily mean that you turn the other cheek and, and you just walk away from it. Sometimes that might be the, the proper course of conduct. Other times it's not because if it's somebody who's engaged in this conduct and cheating others, you want to make sure that you're the last person they cheat. So it's not easy to respond to that in that way because it depends on the causes and conditions that are there. But use wisdom first. Okay? You had a question? Oh, you didn't? All right. Well, we went into overtime. I don't mind the questions because it's natural that you guys are going to have questions for the things that I'm talking about because they're starting to come up in your mind now and you're beginning to contemplate that. So this is, this is good. So, okay. Take your break and we'll come back in a bit.